Our passage begins that same day. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this, this very long day, it seems, in Jesus' life, where he's uh, been in debate with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have said that he's satanic, uh, that he does his miracles by the power of Satan rather than by the power of God. And Jesus has responded by saying, because of what they say, their words accusing him of being satanic, it shows their hearts are far from God. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. They've accused him of being satanic, so they, um, the ones who are meant to be the leaders of God's people, uh, have actually walked from the fold. And he's just begun to gather a new people uh, around himself. And so he turns to tell these parables uh, in Matthew 13. So Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the lake. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. Uh, In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. It's perhaps the most famous of all Jesus' parables. And therefore, with a terrible irony, it's perhaps one that we're tempted to switch off listening to. The chances are, if you've been around church for any length of time you've heard this parable before children you may well have done it in Sunday school I guess Uh, the adults here probably have heard sermons on it before and it'd be a terrible irony wouldn't it because it's a parable all about the significance the importance of listening to God's word 
and the ways in which that can go wrong. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that, that Jesus is a very divisive figure. And so naturally the question arises, why? Why is it that when the Son of God came to earth, he wasn't more popular? If you're not a Christian, if you're, uh, you've got questions about the Christian faith, that, that might be a question you could validly ask. Surely if God wants people to know him, when his Son comes to earth, people would get it. Why is it that God the Son walks on the face of the earth and actually, as we've seen so far, to a great extent, people don't believe. You could ask the same question of, of the mission of the church at the moment, couldn't you? Why is it, if the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, as Paul tells us in Romans, why is it that your mum's still not become a Christian, even though she's heard the gospel? Why is it that your friends at, at uni are just utterly disinterested? Why is it at the moment that the church in the UK is, is not exactly booming, is it? Whatever branch or denomination you belong to, none of us are thriving. Why? What's God up to? We're going to look at, at the sower and the seed and the soil. And hopefully this morning we'll begin to see uh, some answers. And hopefully what we'll see is both an explanation of why Jesus' ministry was less successful than we might assume, less popular than we might assume, but also will be set some expectations of what our own ministry will look like, the mission of the church will look like. Uh, the parable both explains the ministry and mission of Jesus and sets patterns and expectations for the ministry of the church. So let's dive in. And we'll begin with the sower. Uh, the setting in verses one to three is, is down by the seaside. Uh, Jesus goes out of the house and sits beside the lake. Like Matthew is as we've seen already in his gospel, is, is constantly wanting to paint Jesus in the colours of the Old Testament. He takes stories from the Old Testament and patterns, and he, he draws his picture of Jesus with those Old Testament colours. As we've seen Jesus as a, a new Moses, when he kind of escapes Egypt, crosses the water, goes up the mountain, gives the teaching, just like Moses did, spends 40 days in the desert. Uh, we've seen Jesus as the son of David, a big genealogy that tells us that he's descended from David. We've seen kings bow to him. And now we're... We're seeing Jesus really as a new Solomon in Matthew 13. Uh, Jesus already introduced himself that way. If you look up at verse 42 of chapter 12, top of the page there, uh, he talks about the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who will bring judgment on Jesus' own generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I am here, said Jesus, and I'm greater than Solomon. I'm a greater Solomon. Now, Solomon's famous for two things, really. Uh, in the Old Testament, well, two good things. Three things if you include marrying far too many wives. Uh, but that's probably not the comparison Jesus is making. What is Solomon most famous for? Uh, the first thing he's most famous for is the wisdom with which he ruled. Uh, the book of the Old Testament most associated with Solomon. Children, I wonder if you know what that is. Which book in the Old Testament is full of wisdom, uh, full of wise words? Yeah, do you know it? Well, there's a book, there's, he's, he is a book, he's written a book. But it's called the book of Proverbs. So the book of Proverbs is written by Solomon. It begins, these are the Proverbs of King Solomon. Okay. So he's most known as a wise king. Now, why is that relevant to, to Matthew 13 this morning and the, the, the Proverbs, the wisdom that he writes? Well, when they translated the, the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, into Greek, just before the time of Jesus, about 100 years or so before Jesus, um, the Jews translated their Old Testament into, into Greek. And the word they used to describe the Proverbs was parable. 
They're the parables of Solomon. So when Jesus says, I'm a greater Solomon, and then starts teaching in parables, Jewish people would, would pick up, ah, okay. He's being presented as this wise king. And the other thing that, that, that Solomon did, most famously, was build the house of God, the temple of God. And what do we see Jesus doing here? Well, he's beginning to build the new, true house of God. Uh, just above our passage, uh, at the end of chapter 12, uh, when he was sat uh, teaching, uh, a man burst into the house and said, look, your mother and your brothers are outside. And, and we, we thought last week about his words in verse 49, where he stretched out his hands and points to his disciples and says, here's my mother, my brother, my sisters. Uh, my new family are those who do the will of the Father in heaven. And now he's gone outside, he sits down, and he gathers a, a, a crowd around him. He's forming a, a new people. He's turning his back now on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those who were sort of in charge in Judaism, and beginning to form a community around those who will listen to his word. He forms a, a new synagogue. Now, that's actually the word that, that Matthew uses to describe the gathering of verse 2. The great crowds gathered, literally synagogued around Jesus. And he takes the, the position of a teacher in the, in the synagogue. If you were the preacher, you'd sit down. It's quite a nice idea. Uh, you'd sit down to preach rather than stand. So Jesus sits to preach with this new people that have gathered around him. A new Solomon giving new wisdom uh, to a new synagogue. A new uh, gathering of God's people. Uh, the new family he's creating. And he wants them to, to understand about his mission. Verse 3, a sower went out to sow. Who is the sower? Well, first and foremost, it's Jesus. He's talking about himself. The first thing, and it's important we understand this, the first thing he's doing is describing his own ministry rather than just sort of giving eternal truths that will always be true uh, wherever you are in the world. The first thing he's doing is describing his own ministry. Uh, we know that in part because when the disciples ask for an explanation of the next parable he, he tells, if you down at verse uh, 37 of chapter 13, another parable about sowing, uh, Jesus explains, verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Okay, the son of man is the, the sower. It's me, Jesus. So uh, Jesus goes out and sows. What is the sowing? Well, the sowing is his preaching the word of the kingdom, as Jesus calls it uh, in verse 19. Jesus' mission consists largely in him going and preaching the good news, preaching the gospel. And already I think we've hit the first reason why his ministry is so disrespected by the religious leaders, uh, so rejected by a large number of his generation. Is this it, they're saying? You're claiming to be the son of God. You're claiming to be the new David, the new Moses, the new Solomon. You're claiming to be Emmanuel, God with us. And all we see is a 32, 33-year-old Galilean carpenter's son wandering around preaching. And you're seriously expecting us to believe you're the son of God. Now, we look back with the benefit of hindsight and think, well, you know, stupid Pharisees, surely. But honestly, do you not have some sympathy with them? A man turns up from a very kind of working class manual profession. You've known him all your life. In fact, that's the charge that they make to Jesus at the end of the chapter. We know your dad. We know your mum. We know your brothers and sisters. Of course, you're not the Messiah. But, but an average guy from your hometown very ordinary, suddenly starts wandering around claiming to be God's son, the saviour that your entire religious tradition promised would come one day. The entire Old Testament would promise would come one day. How unbelievable is it going to look? 
Not only that, but he doesn't seem to be doing what you think the Old Testament said he would do. So where is the, the conquering of all your enemies that the Old Testament promised? Where's bringing judgment on all those who stand against God, which the Old Testament promised? Where's the great sort of enthronement in Jerusalem that the Old Testament promised? It's easy to pour scorn on the Pharisees, on the Jews who rejected Jesus. But, but think about it this way. What they were expecting is basically what we're expecting at the second coming of Jesus. Okay, as they read the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament weaves together things that would, it turns out Jesus would do at his first coming when he was born and things that Jesus will do at his second coming when he returns. And when you read the Old Testament at times, it's hard to distinguish them. What's he going to do when? And so, so all the things that we're expecting Jesus to do when he comes back, they expected him to do the first time. So when he didn't do them, they were thrown off. Children, have you seen, uh, if you've seen a lad in the cartoon... Um, the Disney film. Do you remember at the beginning of the film, uh, uh, Jasmine, the princess, goes out of the castle. And she puts on just sort of normal, um, covers her crown, covers her robe, just puts on a kind of cloak so people don't know who she is. And she goes down into the marketplace and she's wandering, and the guards catch her. And she says, look, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the princess, but they don't believe her because a princess doesn't wander around outside the castle. A princess wears royal clothes, not just sort of beggar's robes. Well, Jesus is the king who came from heaven and looked so ordinary that people wouldn't believe he was really the son of God. That's the first reason they rejected his ministry. And actually, it's, it's, a, it's a pattern that does continue to this day, doesn't it? It's so easy to become disillusioned with Jesus because of the lack of action, the lack of change, the lack of growth, the lack of improvement. And now we're, we're too sophisticated to say, Jesus, we're disappointed with you. So we divert it and we say, well, we're disappointed with the, the church. Where's the power? Where's the glory? It's all we're going to do. Read, preach, study God's word and pray. Let's get out. Let's change the world. Let's be revolutionary. Let's... And we get disappointed when churches follow in the pattern of Jesus and devote their primary ministry to the preaching of the word, to God's people and to those outside. But that is how Jesus ministered. Do you remember earlier on in the Gospels when uh, he's done some, he's healed some people. And so the crowds come, but Jesus has got up and gone and left. And the disciples come and say, look, there's loads of people you can heal. Village full of them. And he says, no, I'm moving on. Because I've come to preach, primarily. It's not that he lacks compassion. It's just that his primary role on the way to the cross was a preaching ministry, a teaching of God's word ministry. That's why when Paul trains the next generation, uh, Timothy, for example, the next generation of ministers. The commands given to Timothy are preach the word in season and out. Timothy's never told to perform miracles. He's not told to prophesy. He's not, really his instructions are pretty simple. He's told to teach the Bible in season and out of season, whether people will listen or whether they won't listen. Just like Jesus, keep sowing the word. It'll look ordinary. It'll mean some people will go elsewhere because it's far too dull, unspectacular, ordinary, but that's okay. And we've got to ask ourselves, are we happy to let the word do the work? Sometimes we want, we feel like there must be something, some way of sorting out.